This is episode 31 of the Brick and Data podcast, a podcast dedicated to retail news, analytics, and tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Brick and Data podcast. This is Todd Harris, and as always, as usual, we have Jose Chan with us. For this special episode, we're joined by entrepreneur and e-commerce veteran, Mariam Nafisi. Mariam is the founder and CEO of Minted. For those not familiar with Minted, Minted is a high-end, crowdsourced, online stationary business whose designs are chosen through competitions in which it's 2,000-plus designers vote on which designs Minted should actually sell. So pretty cool. And just as a quick introduction for Mariam, so we don't make her go through all of her own bio, Mariam is a pioneer of consumer internet businesses who co-founded her first company, Eve.com, in 1998 and sold it successfully in 2000. Mariam invented Minton's unique crowdsourced and curated marketplace model with the mission of building an e-commerce platform that continuously offers fresh goods across limited categories. And outside of Minted, she sits on boards of Yelp and of a nonprofit called Every Mother Counts. And this organization is dedicated to making pregnancy and childbirth safe for every mother. Mariam is named one of the most, the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company in 2014, one of Fortune Magazine's most powerful women entrepreneurs in 20, uh, 2009, and one of Goldman Sachs' 100 most interesting entrepreneurs every year since 2012. So, Mariam, that, that was a mouthful, and welcome <laughs> to the show, and it's, it's great you. to have you here. It's quite, <laughs> Thank a, you. quite a background. Um, we're going to get into some of the Goldman Sachs stuff, I think, soon, because maybe those that are listening are like, what? <laughs> what does that have to do with anything retail? <laughs> but I think you will explain some of this as we move through. Yeah. But as a, so maybe it'll come into this parts, but as a, as a kickoff here, as a, as a starter to the conversation, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey, I guess, how, and this, this could go back a while, right? I mean, this, you've been around for a while in the industry. Mm-hmm. You've got quite mm-hmm. a reputation, quite a, quite a history to you. So why don't you tell everyone about your entrepreneurial journey? I guess, where did you, why did you decide to go this route of, um, of e-commerce, I guess you could say, instead of sticking to that, uh, like we mentioned before, the investment banking route with Goldman Sachs? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. So I'd I'm out of uh, school at Williams undergrad on the East Coast in Massachusetts mm-hmm. and um, gotten recruited right into the you know investment banking program at Goldman. Um, but after seeing many, many companies, you, you, what's nice about investment banking or management consulting is that you get to see a lot of different companies as your clients. And so I, with Goldman, saw many companies. And then subsequently, I went into management consulting for two years and saw a lot of companies that way as well. And I felt that I was going to move a lot faster in my career if I worked for myself. I, I just sort of felt that I wasn't going to be uh, given as much opportunity potentially as early as I thought in my 20, 20-something-year-old mind that I deserved <laughs> early right. enough. And so I thought that the ultimate merit- meritocracy was really the American consumer market, that here you have hundreds of millions of people voting with their pocketbooks, basically deciding who's great and who's not based on what they buy. And they don't really necessarily, um, they they really care about your end product and your work. You know, at the end of the day, they care about the product, the service, et cetera. Not not necessarily all the time, um, 
you know, who's, who's behind it, meaning that I felt like it would be a less biased test of yeah. whether I could do something right. And that's why I went into entrepreneurship. So I went back to business school and then I decided I wasn't going to interview for jobs. And I, uh, really, uh, was right coming out in 1998, there was funding available. So I called a friend of mine in New York, convinced her to move to San Francisco uh, and we started a cosmetics company t together, the first online cosmetics company called Eve.com. And this is a time when venture capitalists were saying, you know, people aren't going to buy makeup online. They're just not going to do it because you need to try it on first. And we heard about a shoe company that was launching online and people said, no one's going to buy shoes online. That's a silly idea. Um, so uh, repeatedly, by the way, I've heard this time and time and time again, it's like this, this regular refrain. Um, you know, I, I went through a crazy experience raising something like $26 million in, I don't know, something like nine months as a 27-year-old and then sold the company for over $100 million about two years after I'd founded it um, and went through the entire boom and then sold it literally two weeks before the, the, um, the market fell apart in April when the NASDAQ plunged for the first time. And started and dot com companies started going under literally every day. Do you, honestly, sure. do you must look back at that and just get goosebumps thinking about it, about the timing? <laughs> honestly, I mean, especially well, being actually, your, I, your older, wiser <laughs> self right now, right? Being able to, yes. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I sold the company when I was 29 and I didn't really understand any contacts for what I was experiencing. I think it was kind of just I had nothing to relate it to, you know. Uh, but I did get I did get my first gray hair as that was happening. Congrats. Um, because we were waiting for approval for the deal to close as the market was plunging. So it was a really, um, one day I'm going to have to write something about that whole experience, but the, the, the market was closed, the market was plunging, the deal was on hold waiting for government review and finally it closed. Um, and then I stayed with the company, um, post post sale. And then we sold it again, actually. So we sold it two times in one year. And then at that point I decided to take a break. I actually uh, decided to go to work for a bigger company because I felt like I needed to learn a little bit more about how to run a profitable company. So I went to work for a big company for a couple of years at The Body Shop, where the chairman, who's a fantastic retail uh, guy named Adrian Bellamy, who many of your listeners probably know, he's um, on the boards of Williams Sonoma and Gap. He recruited me to The Body Shop. I learned a lot about uh, retail and how to make businesses profitable from him. Then um, I started noticing another shift going on in the consumer market and realized that the um, that when I saw all these bloggers emerging from from nowhere and being listened to more than um, editors at public you know established publications, I realized there was a big shift going on in terms of consumers wanting to program their own channel, consumers' taste becoming fragmented, and talent being able to rise from anywhere with enabled uh, by the internet. And so I thought about product design and thought maybe there's something there there. And I became obsessed with this idea of a design competition. And this is in 2007. So I, I thought that perhaps I could run a design competition and find talented designers. And that was the birth of Minted. So um, this one was completely bootstrapped. It's really the tale of two startups where uh, Eve was very well funded, Minted was bootstrapped, Eve was with a co-founder, Minted was not, at least for the first year. Um, and then I actually found someone who I love so much that I actually retroactively made her a co-founder of the business. Um, and uh, it was a very different time. We bootstrapped it. Nobody was investing in e-commerce in 2007 again. Uh, and 
we there we 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 really built it from into a you know pretty it grew very very quickly into an, a nine more nine figure business basically um, which is today over nine figures and basically nine figures in revenue uh, about 500 employees um, and um, frankly much bigger than Eve.com ever was uh, and it's grown into a community of talented creative artists who are not really just stationary designers. Now we, um, we actually are pretty embedded in the fine art prints business as well as in fabrics and home decor. And when that journey in itself of discovery of what's happening with creative artists out there right now, that people are leaving non-creative professions to try out their creative skills all over the world, enabled by technology, um, that we became a platform for emerging artists to be seen and discovered for the first time and validated was a real discovery ourselves. We thought we were starting a stationary retailer, but what we were really starting was a community and a marketplace. So we transitioned from being only stationary to art and stationary in 2012, then to fabrics in 2015 and home decor. And now we're a full, you know, really becoming a full-fledged lifestyle brand uh, featuring the work of unique independent artists who submit designs into competitions and you, the consumer, tell us what to sell by voting. So that's my journey to where I am right now. <laughs> wow. I have one word for you, Miriam. Impressive. Thank you. You made it through the first dot-com era with Eve.com, which not many people could say um, that they did, and made the transition to this current era. Uh, of growth within tech. So given and following this the, the, this line of thinking, uh, can, can you tell us um, some of the important traits or some takeaways that uh, for our listeners that an entrepreneur should have? Um, perhaps what, what, what is it that makes an entrepreneur tick or should make an entrepreneur tick? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think being, um, I do, I do think there's this thing people say about entrepreneurs being highly optimistic, fundamentally optimistic is, is true. I mean, you look at a problem that a lot of people won't touch and you think you can solve it, right? You think, well, maybe there is a way to solve it and I can figure it out if, if I'm really passionate about it. I think, so I think passion, um, and optimism is definitely a, a common trait. I think sure. that success factors, might be what, what's helpful is in the beginning when everyone is telling you repeatedly that your bad, your idea is a bad idea, basically telling you your baby is ugly. Um, <laughs> you have to find a way to let the water run off your back. Um, basically there's there, the, the trait of being able to ignore what people are telling you when it's, when it's important to do that, um, is very, very important for an entrepreneur to not care what other people think about you. At, at, at every every entrepreneur at some moment has had to tap that and every successful entrepreneur um, actually maybe every entrepreneur actually I would say has had to tap this uh, this this ability to not care what people are saying about you and your idea sure. um, and I can really tell you that you know people predicted I mean, TechCrunch's first article on Minted was terrible it was absolutely terrible. Um, they hated us from the beginning, you know, the, the idea, the company, everything. And um, the, uh, the um, you know, people told me paper wouldn't sell online too. But of course, I had heard that cosmetics weren't going to sell either back in 98. So I kind of had, I had that, on, that experience under my belt. Um, so not to know, not to necessarily listen to the quote unquote experts, but to sure. listen to what, what you think the consumer really wants. 
Um, the other thing I would say as a success factor is, um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time interviewing consumers myself directly. I still facilitate focus groups to this day at Minted. I write the, the, the questionnaires. I, um, I, uh, basically I, um, you know, conduct the focus groups myself. Uh, and I like to read a lot of consumer feedback emails. So I get, a, I get a special inbox where all the consumer feedback goes and I peruse it quite a bit. And there's nothing that shines a clearer light through, um, through the darkness than listening to your customers tell you what they think of you and what sure. they want next. I mean, it is so incredibly clarifying. Uh, I think the one thing I've learned as the company is scaled is not to be disintermediated from, from some primary research and feedback from your consumers, from your, whoever your community or your main, your core audience is. Um, don't let others interpret it, interpret that for you. You've got to see it yourself. So that, um, that has proven so important in terms of guiding me towards priorities, what I'm going to be working on every year, what the company's going to focus on, new product development. It's all been based on consumer, talking to consumers directly and then doing a lot of consumer research. That's, uh, wow. th that's great advice for any, any company, right? I mean, that is not just retailers. That is, you know, in any vertical industry. Um, mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. I agree. I mean, it really is, I guess it really is just so simple, but it really makes sense. You know, I, I think the other thing we've, we've really built ourselves on is metrics, um, and really creating baseline metrics. So what I mean by that is, uh, even if you're really, really early in your journey as a company, uh, trying to establish a basic, very short set of questions you're going to ask consumers and that you're not going to have to change for years is important, uh, because then you can always measure your progress annually over the same questions and see how you're doing. And if something goes wrong, you can go back to those questions and say, how are we doing? So I'll give an example of this is in the minted exit survey, we've actually asked pretty much the same questions for about eight years. And if, you know, we can track how people feel about our site and in a question that's asked exactly the same way. Um, and we can really track our year over year ups and downs and how we've progressed over the years. And that's, and we've been tracking that promoter score since the beginning. So that of, of, of many facets of the, of, of, of different, like, for example, our art business, our stationary business, our wedding business, we, um, we track, we track NPS scores by business and we, we, we distribute those religiously. So at this point, the business, a lot of the business can be managed by metrics. So that's really interesting. So about so speaking of questions, um, one of the I don't remember where we found this, but um, one of your founding questions, I guess you could say, or founding statements, it's positioned as a question here for Minted was, uh, uh, quote, uh, could crowdsourcing design build an e-commerce company that stayed in tune with its customer audience forever? And that's really interesting. Like, is, is mm -hmm. that something that has persisted? Uh, since since the founding, or is this adjusted over time? And and you know, I don't want to answer the question for you, but based on what you're just saying, I'm guessing it's stuck. Meaning that's more of a vision, that's more of a uh, a company uh, uh, directive in a way. Yes, it is. It is. It is the the key core intellectual challenge that that I gave myself as somebody who loves retail, loves e-commerce. Ten years ago, was you know, if Mickey Drexler can have a bad year. 
then how can how can anyone be per, how can any company be perfect? How can you create a? Um, <laughs> and he had a really bad year this past year. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I think he's because I think he's amazing. He's an amazing merchant, but you know he's human, right? Every yeah. every, every merchant is actually ultimately human, and I think what I was trying to figure out as a as a veteran um, shopper was how do I create a retail brand that lasts that's fresh forever? How do I create a how do I create a retail brand that's fresh forever? That's um, that's the core intellectual challenge. And I think where it led me way back when was you've got to let the outside influence you. You've got to let the crowd influence you. So our, our, the way, what we do is we, every single thing you see on our site is sourced by a competition where a designer submits a design into a competition and a consumer votes to tell us what to sell. So on average now our competition's attract somewhere between a thousand to 10,000 submissions and literally millions of consumer votes. We use so much data to decide to, to, to predict what's going to sell. And, um, as a result, we are faster fashion than I think and any, really anyone. And we're really quite, uh, quite adept at, at, at identifying trends very early because now really the consumer and the artist on the street knows more than than many retailers and, and 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 I would say the runway, it's pretty subversive, subversive idea, but it really uh, to me it's something I, I really believe is happening and is going to continue happening. Um, <clears throat> so the uh, the core idea is to say that we still have merchants inside the company, but their role is slightly different. You know, it's it's about uh, shaping the competition structure, building. A pipeline of design talent. We're like an agency. We we develop talent um, by encouraging artists and creatives to submit and to keep working at their their art by giving by having the artists critique each other. And we um, we're constantly on top of trend. We're always always on top of trend. I mean, we've discovered the fountain of youth. That's pretty incredible in the sense that um, you had the foresight to understand that really one day, which is now we're in that day and time period where customers would actually flip the model, right? There was a time when retailers were able to actually dictate what the trends were, but we're in a time where technology has facilitated a consumer's ability to actually uh, influence what's going on, which which is fascinating. And which brings us to our next question is, so in this um, process of, of working with artists, how do you decide uh, what product categories uh, certain uh, designs might work better in than others, given given the aesthetics that, that you see? It, it, how does yeah. this part how does work? It work? So what Minted does is we decide um, what items in the world uh, could end up could stand for could could end up being improved by a open crowdsourcing process. So we, we would think, for example, wow, the photo calendars out there are really ugly. <laughs> we need to make them more beautiful. Or let's say, um, we think there could be better typographic t-shirts in the world. Um, or there are better, you know, so we'll, we'll look at a, we'll look at a product, a commercial product, we'll size the market. We'll do our business analysis to size the market to understand where the gaps are or where the white spaces are. And from a design eye, look at what what what? Where can pattern and typographic art and other forms of art really transform this category? Mm. That's how we decide what to go into next and how to open up these competitions. Then um, 
so we're a little bit of a market maker, you know, between independent artists and understanding what's commercially viable and sure. interesting to consumers. And then we care a lot about the substrate, the, the product, what's what's the product made out of, um, you know, so we'll, we'll, we'll engineer that basic form factor and we'll try to keep those form factors very, very limited for, for, for economic reasons, for financial reasons. Um, I mean, much of our business in the first couple of years was, was built on a simple five by seven piece of paper that we coded both sides of with beautiful content. If you think about it, it was just a five by seven piece of paper. Um, uh, so, you know, we keep the form factors limited. We engineer them to be beautiful. We have a completely make on demand supply chain for everything we sell, believe it or not, even the fabric goods. Wow. And we, um, what we do is we then turn that over to the crowd and we say to the community and we say, okay, here is a t-shirt or here's a tote bag that we, where we've chosen the perfect fabric for this tote bag, the perfect handle, the cut is just exquisite. It's going to hang perfectly on someone's shoulder. Now, what would you, what do you want to put on it? And then consumer, what are you voting for? What do you think the, of the artist's work? And that's how it all happens. We hand over the assortment and design decisions to the crowd. So this is this is interesting yeah. because what what you're telling what I think you're telling everyone here is at least the way I'm interpreting it is that you guys are um, almost ahead of traditional retail right now in in terms of the thinking of putting the consumer in charge of the design or de- in charge of the assortment in a way and that's I think that's mm-hmm. a, a good way to put it essentially giving them the experience that they're in charge or the feeling that they're in charge which is not something yes. that we're all used to in traditional retail, right? And and, and yes. I think that, you know, this model that you have, I wonder, is it immune or is it very separate to some of the stuff we're seeing in retail today, you know? And, and is there any correlation between what you're seeing with uh, retailers having, you know, wh- whether it's troubles with their earnings, troubles with store performance or you know, competitive challenges with multiple retailers, you know, stepping on each other's toes that we've seen across the board in the past year and or two. Um, how, I guess, how does Minted play in that world? It's almost like it's separate in a way. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, we thought, okay, we're going to stay out of this fray. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to, we're insulated from all of this stuff that's happening out there. And we're merrily going along on our own path. However, we started becoming be, being approached by other retailers, actually, who wanted to put our product in their stores. So we began with mm-hmm. West Elm, who was the first to approach us, and started supplying them with limited edition art prints for their stores. And then we moved next to Pottery Barn Kids and supplied art to all their to all of their stores and their catalogs. Um, and and then soon we started getting a lot of inbound, um, both for art as well as for or fabric and home goods products. Um, and so um, we are now really exploring, uh, you know, how do we help other retailers with the surfeit of all the content that we're, the, the designs that we're actually building up this, you know, we have a huge design library of, at this point, about 300,000 pieces of artwork, type, typographic work, patterns, uh Etc. That can be repurposed into fabric, paper designs, etc., apparel even. Um, and so we're actually starting to help other retailers with with their design issues and and try to bring help put unique de- unique designs on shelves everywhere. 
uh, bring unique design to, to, to all retailers. So that's some, that's one way, an important way in which Minted is changing is that it's not really just a direct to consumer brand anymore, but it is now, um, really helping other retailers, um, physical retailers, traditional retailers bring great, unique, fresh crowdsourced and, and data back design to their stores. So we're going to be increasingly doing doing that in the future. So do you have any any I guess stemming off of that? Are there are there plans on? So you mentioned that kind of wholesaleish model where you will you know feed mm-hmm. feed designs to other retailers. Um, do you have any plans on taking your own presence uh, from a brick and mortar perspective and taking one of the most popular assortments? Or uh, we'll get into this in a little bit, but using you know some some data gathered that you have based on you know, people that visit your site and knowing what people prefer in terms of designs, or you're talking about having the perfect, you know, the perfect material and, you know, this, this design and this, this edging to something or really understanding the intricacies of what people want and being able to kind of push that out to a, a, you know, a physical presence. Is that something on your roadmap in terms of business model at all? Or is that something you're sort of for now, just kind of shying away from? Well, we do, we did, uh, we do have a pop-up right now, a pop-up store in downtown San Francisco, which we've really enjoyed having. And I think it's provided surprising benefits in ways that we, we actually didn't anticipate things like building brand awareness, um, having us be able to experiment, almost use it as a lab for testing products and, uh, and really, really noticing demand that we hadn't noticed for, for certain of our products. Yeah. Um, so ironically, it's actually a useful test lab for a company that's online. Um, and we get a lot of really interesting interaction directly with consumers. We watch them. You can, you can see them shopping, picking things up. There's just this physicality that you miss right, being an online retailer. It's a constant focus groups, right? It's, yeah, yeah, constant yeah, focus groups, yeah. which you know I love. Yes. Data or data. <laughs> uh, and then um, I, I also think that there's nothing like walking into the physical expression of a brand to really build a brand. I think it's pretty difficult to do that without a physical presence in my opinion. So I'm a big believer actually in having both an online presence and a, as, and a physical presence to build brands. Um, it just makes you much more tangible and real to consumers and let's let them experience your quality of your product. For example, if you're in art and home decor, being able to see and touch and feel the frames and the fabric is really important. So we're actually going to expand. We're, we're, we're working on, on those plans, but I think it's really important to, if you want to build a brand these days. Sure. And that, that makes a lot of sense uh, in the way you describe it. And I, and I like the way you put that. It's, it's the physical expression of a brand that you, and, and having to bring the online and digital together, right? So you need both to coexist. And then switching gears a little bit. Um, what is the role of technology at Minted? So do, do you use any advanced analytics or machine learning on your site uh, or perhaps in the pop-ups in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, so te- technology is super, um, super important to us. So one one aspect is that we, we personalize your site experience. Um, giving you, for, to give you an example, we... we um, we've realized that holiday cards, the, the greetings that people put on their holiday cards are very, very different uh, based on which zip code or DMA they're in. And it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating, I'll tell you, it's absolutely addictive to look at orders coming in the holiday season and see that, you know, Bakersfield, California, 
has a very religious top five in terms of their greetings versus San Francisco, which usually says happy holidays. So we, yeah. So when you come to our site this Christmas and you see holiday cards on the site, you're going to see greetings that have, that are basically programmed to your area and featured, you know, prominently on the site. Um, the number one greeting in Hawaii that, in terms of our sales is actually Mele Kalikimaka. And, um, that is, uh, you know, you know, if you're coming from Hawaii, you've, you've got to see a holiday card prominently with that greeting on it. So we actually change our site very much based on GOIP recognition and analytics behind the scenes. There's also just the fact that everything we source and sell is um, is really uh, chosen using analytics and analytics applied to the voting data. So it's not like we take the voting data absolutely cold. We actually weight the data based on predictive analytics telling us what kinds of voters are going to be better at predicting than others. So <clears throat> if you fit a model of someone who is more predictive than someone else, we're going to weight your vote more heavily. And so crowdsourcing, I think people think it's just you dump it all in and you and you get a vote out. It's not really it's that's not really going to end up with both a beautiful and a successful assortment. There is a lot of a nuance uh, that develops over time. And so for us, um, we, we use predictive analytics to tell us what to sell, what to put into the assortment. Um, and then finally, we are using more and more um, image recognition and machine learning to sort all of the product we're sourcing, all the patterns, all of the images. We have to get that. Basically, we're using that to sort and tag all of the content in our library to make it licensable and usable to other companies. Um, and that's, that's all based on basically image recognition. So that's, um, that's just three ways in which we use technology. There's so many more I could go into that have to do with providing consumers with cool services, but I'll just, I'll stop there. Yeah, that was pretty deep. So, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah that, that covers the gamut pretty much. And it seems like you've got yeah. that. It's a really nice infrastructure to have in place in terms of the way you operate because um, I think it's a, I think it's not not hard to assume or or take from that that it's more advanced than some retailers that have been around for a long time, and it seems like many retailers that have perhaps originated from stores that are either expanding out to e-commerce or they have both but they haven't fully integrated all their data and they're trying to get a better grip on exactly what you guys are doing, you know, meaning mm -hmm. be a better grip on their consumer and letting them have a little more control or letting them. Um, really understanding what they want. And that's been a big challenge for them. And, you know, you, you guys seem, Minted seems to be coming from the opposite side where all that stuff's buttoned up. It's like, okay, now that we've got all that buttoned up, we know all these mm -hmm. things, we've got the community engaged, let's open some stores, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, exactly. a very interesting angle you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that to me, my, my, my perspective on this is that um, it, the core, the core, issue is putting technology at the heart of some of the decisions that need to be made in a retailer. Not necessarily that you have to go to be to become the deepest and best and best at, at analytics, but that you have to be the best at putting it at the core of your decision-making process. And that's what's really hard for people to really accept, I think. So um, just food for thought. It's, it's really about how do you, how do you accept that these, uh, that the recommendations are good coming out of data to make to make the most difficult decisions your company has to make right and it goes back to that the merchant the merchant concept before when you mentioned mickey drexler and that world of 
or that time frame of making decisions and it's it's very much averse of you know analytics and that wasn't really a part of retail until recent years so it's definitely a it seems to be a bit of a hurdle right yeah exactly so again switching gears we're switching gears a lot here Mm -hmm. Uh, moving away from technology Mm -hmm. away from your background but moving towards uh some of the work that minted has done which seems to stand out a fair amount you know on your website and and of course in your background um you know minton's involved in a fair amount of community work and nonprofits. i can't imagine you handle all this so do you have a team that that works on all this mm-hmm. and are there some you know some that you would want to mention here and i guess how does that all mm-hmm. how does that all work for a company your size which is not not huge by any means yeah uh well we are very passionate I'm lucky to have very passionate, very dedicated colleagues who come to Minted because they're passionate about helping artists, for example. That's a big part of our mission, is enabling artists to follow their passion and actually make some money and and make a living from it, which is wonderful. Um, Very gratifying for all of us to bring happiness to a lot of people. Um, The... uh, I, I mean, we have a community relations team that actually manages all of our relationships with our artist community. And they often, I would say, are, I think Minton has quite a bit of a nonprofit aspect to the company because we end up um, helping educate a lot of emerging artists, giving them feedback, putting them together with other artists, uh, enabling enabling a community. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We actually match mentors to them in the community. So in a sense, yeah, it's, it's in a sense, it's a giant, artist development machine, talent machine. And, um, and the, and so in, in the, in the aspect that our, in, in the respect that our community team is actually managing the relationships with the community, they are actually doing in a sense, nonprofit work and community work. So that, that, that just is so embedded in the company that our team actually just, that's, that's their job. And it's actually the job of a lot of people at Minted, you know, if you're working at our company, you're inevitably working with independent artists. Um, And then we do have an important partnership with Every Mother Counts, and we had chosen Every Mother Counts partly because it reflects who we are as a company. We have a lot of moms in our independent artist community and a lot of moms buying on our site. So both our consumers and our artists, there's a very large mom population. So we wanted to, to really uh, make motherhood safer for, for, and, um, you know, for, for everyone. So what Every, every Mother Counts does is prevents... Um, uh, death really in childbirth around the world and bring supplies, training, transportation, et cetera, to, to help solve that problem in a lot of developing countries. And, and frankly, unfortunately also in our own country where there are issues in Florida. So we, um, we, um, we have, we just basically our community and our PR teams lend their time to help us promote every mother counts as just as a part, as a really important partner to us, but we don't have a special team, working on nonprofit relationships. That's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, before we wrap all this up and we've, we've gone for a while now and we appreciate all the, all the time you've taken to, to talk to us. Is there anything you want to mention to the listeners as far as any, either, I don't know, any other shows you're going to be on? We know shop.org, right? And I'll mention, mention some details after this, but uh, anything else you want to mention, mention while we have you? I think, um, I think that uh, I, I think that Minted. I think the core thing that we want people to understand is Minted is really a design community now that crosses over many categories. And you, sh- you know, 
take a look at us, not just in stationery, but in fabrics and home decor, um, in art, where we're going to be pushing out and launching more and more interesting things um, in those areas, which are coming soon. So I would say keep keep uh, stay tuned for more news on that front as for we sure. go into the fall, because we'll have some really exciting product launches coming. For sure. Well, I mean, I've, I've used your I've used Minted for many years now when it comes around to the holidays. I know that's a very basic, shallow way to to uh, um, to use Minted, but and I know you're extending that out. But um, it's the, the designers and it's just amazing artistic artistic abilities and the assortment there is just uh, it's perfect. Like it's a, it's a it's a pleasure <laughs> to, to to buy things. I'm not one to want to, you know, <laughs> uh, you can't compare it to things like going to Paper Source or going to in a Hallmark or something like that. It's a whole different world. Yeah. Um, so, Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, well, big thanks to to Mariam. Thank you so much for for taking some Thank time you. here. And um, if if you our listeners will be at the shop.org conference later in September. You got to catch Mariam there in her keynote session. I believe you're joined by uh, several other founders or co-founders of, re- of retail organizations on Tuesday, uh, at September 26th at 3.30 on the main stage. So got to check that out. We'll be there for sure. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. And I can't wait to see you there. Absolutely, Likewise. absolutely. And that is the show, everybody. Questions, comments, feedback, you can email us at brickdatacast at gmail.com. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and really any other of your favorite podcast apps. And uh, until next time, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.